You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. This is episode 122. We are going to be talking about National Treasure for our third week of June. It came out in 2004. We watched it on Disney Plus. So if you're a Disney Plus subscriber, then you too can watch it without paying any extra money. It was directed by John Turtletob, who also did Cool Runnings and While You Were Sleeping in 95 and Phenomenon in 96. It stars Nicolas Cage, Diane Kruger, Justin Bartha, Sean Bean, John Voight, Harvey Keitel, and Christopher Plummer. The DP, you may recognize this name, Caleb Deschanel. Any relation to Zooey? Their father, (gasps) Zooey and Emily. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, father of. And he, we know him, his work quite a bit from the 83, The Right Stuff, 84, The Natural, 96, A Big Fave of Mine, Fly Away Home, the 2000, The Patriot, and in 2004, he worked with Marty Scorsese on The Passion of the Christ. Wow, quite an oeuvre. When did he find time to father a couple daughters right? in there? <laughs> it was cute. I was watching a thing just a little bit ago, and I could pick up, I would say, their traits, but it's probably the other way. I could see mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, traits in him that they had either picked up or genetics. Right. He has a good singing voice. <laughs> that wasn't one of them. Oh, okay. This film was written by Jim Koof, and he also did 1987 Stakeout, and he worked on the Grimm series. That's in- right. A little local connection. Mm-hmm. He may have actually been here, right, very, as a showrunner very, on Grimm. Very true, very true. Yeah. Well, and if he wants to come back, I'll, I'll buy him a sandwich. So there was also... A, a writing team of Cormac Wimberly and Marianne Wimberly, obviously related in, in some way. And it says the screenwriting team of Terry Ruscio and Ted Elliott were hired by producer Jerry Bruckheimer to do an uncredited script polish for the film. Yeah, I think that's pretty common that a bunch of writers are brought in to do passes on it. Mm-hmm. I know that this film was under a touchstone banner for a bit, mm-hmm, but then mm-hmm. it was toned down, I get I think, to get the PG rating and then and Disney approved and so they were then willing to put their moniker on it. I wonder what was toned down. Was it violence or did Abigail have a topless scene we never got to see? Possibly. I, th- I feel like my memory, it was more language. Oh, sure, sure. Okay. But I'm sure some, maybe some violence too. The synopsis for the film is a historian races to find the legendary Templar treasure before a team of mercenaries do. I've got three taglines for you. All right, three. Lay them on me. The greatest adventure history has ever revealed... Mm, mediocre. Okay. In order to break the code, one man will have to break all the rules. A little bit better. Very Hollywood high concept action film. Yeah, I like it. And then the clues are right in front of your eyes. No, too confusing. 
Well, I think, don't you think it's referencing that eye that's like on the top? Oh, absolutely. I know where they're going and lots of clues, but I think it's a tagline. I I don't think it serves the film. So in doing research, you know, I always kind of troll. Well, maybe troll isn't the right word. Um, Well, troll is in fishing. Yes. (laughs) Not as in internet commenting. (laughs) Right. Um, I troll the internet for, or mostly YouTube for interviews with the Mm -hmm, filmmakers mm -hmm. to try to kind of gain. And there were... There were so many and they were like sometimes half hour in length. I did not watch them. But if you want to go down a rabbit hole, there are many people who have made videos on the things that that they got wrong in this film. (laughs) The things that uh, there was this one. It was just really comical. This guy was just kind of hate watching kind of in a sarcastic somewhat funny way and he was saying at the very beginning when Christopher Plummer is telling little what's his name Ben Ben yeah little Ben young Ben about the the clues that were left behind and this guy was like yeah because we would definitely leave clues on money that everybody handles every single (laughs) day (laughs) great place to hide it so question is where did this land relative to the book Da Vinci Code, because it's the same kind of, it sounds like the criticism. So in the beginning of the Da Vinci Code, the author says, like, all of the places listed here really exist there. And then I subsequently read someone say, like, yeah, they exist, but not in the necessarily format that that he said or whatever. And and to me, it's like a, a famous director once said, it's just a movie, right? Anybody who kind of saw the Nicolas Cage character as an actual like historian is probably missing the point of this film. So I have for a Hollywood action movie. I think this is suitably accurate, right? All that I expected. It makes sense within its own universe. It's internally consistent. That's all I care about. So this predates the Da Vinci Code. The book, the first book was published in March of 03 and the movie came out in 06. Oh, so this, okay. This pre, right? Or did, no, this, oh no. This is, this is 2004. So the book came out a year before this film. Uh, they probably ha- were aware of it, but I don't think they, they had necessarily read it or studied it. But it just reminded me of that in that there was a, a Knights Templar treasure and a puzzle. And I, I thought it was a ton of fun. Yeah, yeah. A little bit of trivia. On the back, there is not, there's in fact not a map. Oh, okay. Someone checked. That was good. Yes. But somebody wrote at some point, but they don't believe it was written in um, 1776. It says, Original Declaration of Independence dated 4th July 1776. And it appears on the bottom of the document upside down. They say they don't know who wrote that, but they do believe that it didn't happen it was a label that was added later the little bit of research i did and brace yourself listeners i occasionally do some research (laughs) generally not said that there were actually they did make copies right there was like the the i don't think the one we have in dc was the original (gasps) i think they made a a a copy like the day after because it was like a working document and they're like okay you know Write it out nice this time. (laughs) John, do better. (laughs) Yeah, get to work. Um, However, I have to say, I think it's such 
a wonderful idea that in retrospect, this is one of those films where I say, why did no one think of this before? Because now you go, well, of course you would make a movie about some like hugely famous historical document that involved all these clues and you'd have to run around and get, I mean, it makes tons of sense now, but before this movie came out, that was not obvious. So why don't you kick us off with your pickup line? Okay, so brief digression. There's a word, penultimate, which I think means the the one before the last. So is there a peninitial that is the one after the initial? Because the first actual line of dialogue we hear is, Grandpa, however, it doesn't support my theory. So the second line from Christopher Plummer as Grandpa is, you're not supposed to be up here. And I think that works much better for my theory. It's really well done, too, because we the scene has been set for us that there's a boy kind of tiptoeing around an attic. There's a great thunder and lightning storm. Of course. To set even a You more, never sneak around at three in the afternoon, <laughs> right? Right, in full sun. And there's definitely, I believe, some music under it, too. Yeah, this whole film, they really did a great job with setting the mood with the score. Mm -hmm. It is really present in the audio, and it definitely keys the the watcher into what's going on. Right. I believe even he bumps something and something falls, and so it's like a little jump. And so when Christopher Plummer says that... right. the initial is, oh, no, he's been caught, or right. and now he's in trouble. And then it's just his sweet grandpa who says, you know, kind of, sit down, let me tell you a story. Yeah, which makes me think that I have the years until I have grandchildren to come up with some treasure hunt for them as well. Right, there you go. Well, you know, old Grandpa Dodge <laughs> used to be involved with the Knight Templar. Yeah. Uh-oh. So I have a note here in our cinematography and, and I'm a little embarrassed to admit what I'm about ready to embarrass, uh, to admit. Okay. All right. It's a safe space. Yeah. With only a few listeners and hopefully today, none of my professors at film school are listening. Well, you should have slipped me a note and I could say it because then they would think I didn't know. Okay. So we know we've said, we've long said that Hollywood is obsessed with blue and orange. Yes. And and when we said that, in my mind, I was always thinking sets, costumes. I first heard about it cars. with respect to movie posters. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so Caleb Deschanel was talking about how tonally, when yeah. you set up a movie, you balance it with... Orange light, and yeah. Blue light, yep. And like even when he he was talking about shooting a trailer, and and I went, oh my gosh, were they talking about lighting? Oh, it's everywhere. Okay, so it's not just so it, I'm not completely out of it that I I didn't think of lighting, which should be the most obvious because those are your two choices of lighting, is blue from like an LED or daylight. Or golden from like firelight and right. tungsten. So if you look at the complementary colors, right? Yes. 
purple I, and yellow don't make sense. Red and green don't make sense. <laughs> blue and orange work. Well, and they work too because like the sun and the moon, right? The sun gives off a yellow oh. glow and yeah. and the moon gives off a blue glow. So it works for lighting and I just am embarrassed <laughs> that I didn't even think of lighting. Even though I know that like those are the two, like I know part of it, but I didn't make the connection that like well, did just... the sets and the costumes and the movie posters come from the lighting. Um, I hadn't really thought that put those two and two together, but I was just thinking perhaps these are also Bruckheimer joints, but days of thunder and top gun, they both have these very distinctive, I can think of my head, right? Shots at sunset. And why? Cause it's this it's beautiful, beautiful orange right. backdrop. And then the ocean with the sunset is yeah. blue and orange, yeah. right? Uh, we saw this, we talked about it with Greatest Showman when they're on the beach at the sunset. She's in a blue dress. So, th- yeah, there is this really common through line, and I hadn't even thought of it myself. I was in always thinking in terms of, you know, a tungsten light, a, 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 a warmer light is generally more appealing. It makes all of the pretty people who are actors look even prettier. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I didn't even think of that, right? The, the, the kind of the, the shadows and that color could be the blue, mm-hmm. right? But then, okay, La La Land, right? Mm-hmm. The blue night as they dance, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's right there. Okay, so at the same time I outed myself for being an idiot, I'm going to say I was a genius then because my very first film, I have that scene where I wanted her lit like yes. from the moon. Yeah. And then we went to indoors when she was lit with incandescent, more yellow or orange tungsten type right. lighting. Right. So I too like Caleb Deschanel. No. Right. Just kidding. But no, because it works. Right? That, right. I mean, that's why they do it. It just works. Right. And to balance it. Okay. So I just mentioned that the cinematography for this, he did a great job because all the different times they're kind of in caves and you have the fire torches. And so not only does it create this beautiful amber look, but then it kind of flickers. And so you get organic kind of shadows dancing on the walls. And I, I really liked the cave scenes with the torches. Right. So brief digression. Yeah. We can come back to cinematography, but the speaking of the sets, I would love to see an interview with the art department for building that beneath the Trinity Church underground. I mean, w- when you see that, that is a physical set. That's not CGI. And, and, it, and it's got moving pieces. And mm-hmm. I hope they had a ton of fun building that. And it's based on, in one of my videos I watched, it's based on an actual... Under the Trinity Church is like a tunnel system complete with kind of, kind of like the catacombs. They, right, they were, right. There were real dusty skulls down there oh. and pathways and hallways and artifacts. And they showed video from it. It was pretty cool. I That's, mean, because you kind of go like, there's no way that would be under. The- no. Well, and, and, and I think that the column with the, the gears and stuff, maybe not. But yeah, definitely catacombs and tunnels and mm-hmm. totally cool. It reminded me of Goonies, the mm-hmm. yeah. under the restaurant, that, you know, place, cavernous place that they all went to. Right. Now, on the Oregon coast, we have naturally occurring caves. Mm-hmm. So, but then circling back to the Da Vinci Code, right? There really are catacombs beneath Paris mm-hmm. where people were buried. So there's tons of skulls and, and bones and stuff. And we have tunnels here under Portland. So I guess yeah, it... Yeah, yeah. 
Or Shanghai Tunnels. Okay. Share with me what you loved about Caleb Deschanel's work in this film. Well, I want to first say it only ever rains at night in Hollywood. So uh, (laughs) that's not his fault, but that's because it it doesn't show up in daylight. It looks weird and no one understands why Nicolas Cage is wet. And they close that street to wet it and have, sorry, Diane Kruger. um, Yeah. To have her run across the street to Mm -hmm. where he was waiting by the van. Right. Close down that whole street in in Washington, DC. Of all places. right. Right. What I thought was fascinating was when they were shooting the first scenes when they're in the Arctic, mm-hmm. right? So either they have some sort of breath fogger, or I think it was actually that cold, which tip of the cap to the camera department to be able to shoot in temperatures that cold is above and beyond. Right. So they weren't in the Arctic. They were in Utah, but it it was, you know, during winter and, and it was probably pretty cold. Yeah, so there's all kinds of physical problems with camera equipment when it gets that cold. So tip of the cap there, my friend. Uh, I like his shot placement that he has a ton of dirty shots. And by dirty, remember viewers, what I mean is not uh, schmutz on the lens, but where you can see like Dan Kruger's shoulder, she's talking to Nicolas Cage and then vice versa, right? And I like that from an image perspective because it puts the two characters connected it shows them connected and and i respond to that i like that quite a bit they have the heist preparation montage you know i love me a montage and heists <laughs> i did have one little question is when they go to urban outfitters to get some some clothes at some point diane kruger raises to her tiptoes to talk to nicholas cage for some reason mm-hmm. and we have a close-up of her on her feet on her tiptoes and it it, it bumped me. I have no idea why. Well, the, to me, that motion is often, uh, often a kiss comes after that. Right. So was that to just kind of subtly kind of inform the audience that these two are going to get together or that right. she wants to? Or it's possible that our DP was putting a little fan service in for Quentin Tarantino with the foot shot. But more importantly, I wonder, did the editor use that to cover something? Right. Right. It kind of, it was just like, where did that come from? But you're right. I did make a note. Was it like the old days when they would raise a leg to show va, 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 voom? Mm -hmm. But the foot chase in Philly was ton of fun. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if they did Steadicam or dollies. Mm -hmm. And I think they may have dollied it which is really impressive to do a foot chase with dollies. It's a lot of setups and teardowns. So Mm -hmm. tip of the cap to the grips on that one. Mm -hmm. And in general, I felt like this was shot cinematically, not as much an action film. I thought the way they captured the images really, to me, felt like we were dealing with the Declaration of Independence. This was a big thing. It was an epic thing. I thought Mm -hmm. that it was shot well. Mm -hmm. Yep. I was very sad near the beginning when they basically ruined the Charlotte. Oh, yeah. That's sad. I'm, I'm thinking of all the snarky things that one guy said in the video about this part. Right. <laughs> I'm going to link it in the show notes because for those who want to watch it, and it is pretty comical. So Riley says, oh, when they go to first... <laughs> When they go to first meet Diane Kruger and try to get her in on kind of like what's going on and hey, we want you to know somebody's going to seal the Declaration of Independence. And so Nicolas Cage is explaining stuff to her and yeah. and she kind of 
at different points of his story, Riley will will yeah. speak up and he goes, yep, this is where we lost the FBI. <laughs> right. And then later he goes, mm, and this is where we lost the Department of Homeland <laughs> Security. Yeah, those are funny lines. In Nicholas's telling of, hey, you need to be aware. And she's just like, nobody is going to seal. A little fact, the security up until 2001 of where the Declaration of Independence was, was the same security system that was installed in 1957. So actually, (laughs) stealing the Declaration would have been much, much easier pre-9-11, basically. Once 9-11 happened, they revamped the whole security system of the National Archives, and... So the filmmakers hired a police officer to help them with burglaries and figure out now with this super heightened security, how could someone possibly steal right. it from the uh, National Archives? So here's my thing. I, I don't think that's the real Declaration of Independence. I, I wouldn't do that. If, it never sees the light of day. No, you'd have a, do, uh, a replica made and you put it out. It's like the Mona Lisa. Right. You don't put that crap out where the hoi polloi can steal it. Duh. <laughs> you put it out. You put a duplicate out where the hoi polloi can yeah. see it. Exactly. And then if they steal it, you're like, oh, no, they stole the Mona Lisa. Wait, are you telling me that the photo I have of the Mona Lisa is is a photo of a photo? <laughs> well, I, I, th- I think it's a photo of an incredible replica. At least I'm saying that's what I would do if I was in charge. I, I, I apparently don't trust people. <laughs> Let's see. I love how it feels almost like a heist movie. Oh, yeah. Lots of heists. Even though it's like a heist for good. Yeah. And and so he has a line, speaking of when they go and talk to Abigail, where he says, we're more like treasure protectors. And I think that's um, that's what makes it fun is there. It's like kind of like leverage, right? Where they use their burglary skills for good. I like this movie. So um, is there anything on writing that I missed? Because the only thing, I have free frequency jamming device. I don't know why I wrote I need to make more detailed notes. Right. <laughs> so they used a, a couple of the old gags. One of them is the Tell Us Another Story Grandpa <laughs> exposition at the beginning of the film, which yes. uh, it was okay, but, you know, how do you get out a lot of exposition? Mm-hmm. They also had the old car won't start gag, which I, I kind of, not not the best work, because when's the last time that a modern automobile has not started and then started? If they don't start, they don't start. Right. Right. But if you keep stepping on it, you keep... And then the, this is the clincher. This is how you fix every car. Uh-huh. You pound on the steering wheel. Yeah, sure. I'm sure that helps. <laughs> so that was maybe not, 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 not the best. But I made a note here that I thought that Benjamin Gates was the spiritual, uh, not literal, descendant of Indiana Jones. Very much the same vibe of, you know, this rogue archaeologist slash historian who is getting into trouble. I never really understood how Sean Bean's character knew everything. So whenever they went to a place without getting the same clue, he was always there. Except for it's funny because in that video I keep referencing, the guy says, how did Sean Bean like go to all the trouble and hire Nicholas Cage. But then there was something, and now I can't remember, but something very early on that he didn't know that he didn't understand. <laughs> right, and some it was basic. like, wait. So 
he was almost kind of like a, a deus ex machina, but in a bad kind of way, where the villain just constantly, yeah, but like you said, doesn't know everything. Now, and if he was that rich and that smart, why did he hire a bunch of goons that look like goons? <laughs> like, no, nobody put him in a ball cap and a New York Knicks, like, uh, jersey or you something? Know, when just, you at least go get, like, kind of the rejects that didn't make it into the FBI, because they would at least have the look. Right, yeah. Right? They, they'd be, like, boring with, with really nice haircuts. I don't know. So that, that was kind of a little... But I did like, from a writing perspective, how they used the parallel break-ins to establish a ticking clock because oftentimes in movies it's like oh no the security system will only be down for five minutes so we only have five minutes to break in very cliche this though was a race they were literally racing against another team breaking in i don't remember the last time i've seen that in a film i thought Mm -hmm. that was very clever Mm -hmm. very clever all right we already kind of touched on some a little bit of costume, but the, definitely the sets. I liked the score would rise and fall when we should be paying closer attention, I noticed. Like, this is really important. Pay attention to this. Like, right. it, the, it would definitely kind of maneuver our attention. Yeah. Well, you maybe know this from your research, but I was curious if they actually shot on the Capitol Mall. And if so... <laughs> Did they block off the entire Capitol Mall for the shoot? No, no, I think those were just extras. That was one of the things that guy says. Is like, first we're going to talk about stealing the Declaration of Independence in the National Archives. Okay, now let's go out to the Capitol Mall to talk about stealing right. it. Like, you know, just there was no sense of secrecy. No operational I security. I think it was just, you know, the iconography of yeah. Washington, D.C. and all the monuments and feeling the importance of that location. Yeah, so I think this would be a fun experiment for someone to perform. I'm looking at you, Superfan Ernie, to actually go sit on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and talk about stealing the Declaration <laughs> of Independence to see if anybody notices. I feel like there's some kind of like hyperbolic um, <laughs> microphone yeah. that kind of... And there's someone like sitting underneath Lincoln just listening to what people are saying. But wouldn't it be hilarious if somebody from the park service walked up and said, Nicholas Cage called and he wants his movie back. <laughs> move along. Yeah, move along. <laughs> Was there any head trauma in this film? Well, speaking of goons, I have two. One is implied. They taser a guard and he falls down. And so I'm thinking if you're unconscious and you fall, you probably hit your head. You don't, don't, Protect yourself. Got a boo-boo. But then uh, Ben punches a goon during the Philly foot chase. So that qualifies as head drum. They said they were the first people to film in that tower in Philly. Oh, huh. So there you go. There you go. And do we get a, I was going to say Diane Kruger, and now I do remember her name, and Abigail. Do we get an Abigail and Ben smooch? Smoochy, smoochy, smoochy. We actually have two. Uh, the second one is they kiss celebratorily at two hours, 43 seconds. The first one is a little tra- problematic. I don't see why he kissed her, and I don't know if it was particularly consensual. I <laughs> wrote down, Ben kisses Abigail inexplicably at one forty-one oh four. So that was before. So the Yeah, that was earlier in the film, and I didn't feel like they had established that they were 
on kissing terms and he just kisses her kind of like, well, things are going to go south. I might not make it. So I want to <laughs> grab a smoochie before I go. But uh, hello. Got to ask permission there, Ben. How about a driving review? All right. So I have to say you don't see a lot of, and by which I mean a lot of no other Tucker Snowcat 2000 XLs in films. <laughs> it was nice to see some Snowcat work. That van chase, tons of fun. Not particularly realistic, and I gotta say, neither a 94 GMC Vandura or an 85 Grumman Olsen Curbmaster are bulletproof. Common Hollywood problem, bullets go right through cars. The uh, 2000 Cadillac DeVille, while probably a nice product placement, is not what I would consider an inconspicuous vehicle. Now, maybe that's the only one John Voight had, but it's pretty easy to track. And lastly, I was stunned when they were on the Aircraft Carrier Museum ship. There's a line of dialogue to meet at the F-16, and lo and behold, there actually was an F-16, which is kind of weird because um, the F-16 was only used by the Air Force, and that's a Navy ship, but that's not important right now. There was an alternate ending that I found really interesting. Wait, what? Yeah. How do you have an alternate ending to this film? Okay. It wasn't that dramatic, but... Okay. I think in place of them being with Riley at the end where he's in the car, there's two kids and they're standing in front of, they're in the National Archives standing in front of the Declaration of Independence. And one says to the other, do you really think there's a map on the back? And the other one goes, no, they just tell us that to get us interested in history. And so I thought that was funny because there were a couple videos that I watched about people kind of breaking down this film and what it got right and what it got wrong. And one person or a couple of them said, I really love this movie and it really got me interested in history. <laughs> right. So here's the thing. I've been spoiled by those silly Marvel movies. That feels like a mid credits scene. Yes. I wonder it would totally work for that, and maybe right. they did that, and that's why it just said to, it said alternate yeah, ending. Yeah, and I'll also. I'm glad they that. didn't, though. I think that you like the ending that maybe that is played out. Was in the well. Uh, I just meant I'm not not the biggest fan of mid credit scenes. Right? Well, and then it pulls back, and you see Ben, and he's kind of chuckles. Oh, those kids! And then he joins. Abigail. Abigail and then Riley's there and and they say something else and like well, let's do let's steal this next or something and Riley right. goes wait you know like okay now that's making more sense that they would film that but it's interesting again possibly a I don't think it's Bruckheimer I thought it's Michael Bay but at the end of The Rock mm -hmm. they have a similar thing where there's a plot point don't want to spoil it in case anybody's not seen, seen The seen Rock the where the very tail end of the movie is kind of like that it's a comic a kind of an amuse-bouche or, mm -hmm. you know, palate mm -hmm. cleanser. Curious. Um, shall we go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. Okay. Before we go to the numbers, really quick, I want to add, as part of, you know, in the numbers, we talk about the ratings. And Roger Ebert gave this film two out of four stars, calling <laughs> it so silly that the Monty Python version could use the same screenplay line for line. Academic David Boardwell has expressed a liking for the film, placing it in the tradition of the 1950s Disney children's adventure movies and using it as a basis for an essay on scene transitions in classic Hollywood cinema. So it's a mixed, mixed reviews on, on this one, but 
No surprise that Eber didn't like it because he and I disagree on everything. <laughs> right? And we love this movie. Okay. This movie had a budget of $100 million. Domestically, it made $173 million. So just domestically, they made their money back. Adjusted for inflation today, that would be like $254.6 million. And worldwide, it brought in $331.3 million, which is a 3x return on their initial investment, which $100 million is a lot of money. So... Well, in 2004, especially. I know. They were really right. banking on Nick Cage in this story. Well, I, I mean, I, th- I think it really... And again, this is retrospect, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. but yeah, of course. Right. It got a 6.9, so let's just say a 7 out of 10 on IMDb. And critics did not like it very much at 46%, but audiences were with us. They gave it a 76%, which even though that's still like a mid-C, I, I feel like audiences like this film. Yeah, I would think so. This to me is really high quality for a summer blockbuster compared to the other stuff that they put out as 10 pole films in a summertime. This one is way beyond. Yeah. And I agree with that, that one that I just read that writer, it does kind of harken back and not in uh-huh. a, not in a schmaltzy way, but of like the, what's this escape to which bound. Exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Those, yeah. it does kind of have that, you know, in a modern take obviously right. but I, it has that feel and, and i say this as a compliment not an insult but it's a family-friendly film totally. you could take your kids to that and maybe they would get excited about the declaration of independence right, right? oh grandma could go the 10 year old can go and the parents right. and everybody's gonna even take the dog <laughs> you probably can in some places uh, uh, it, did it, it feel animal. did it feel long to you because it's over two hours at two eleven. it did not feel long at all i was surprised when i saw how long it was mm-hmm. i thought it, when I thought I, it I, was I, paced well nice and like i said it's a action adventure mystery yeah yeah and we also mentioned it's a disney pictures and a jerry bruckheimer films and some of the filming locations were like we said washington dc new york philadelphia the Arctic scenes, the snowy scenes were all done in Utah, Burbank, New Jersey, Independence Hall, Rooftop was um, filmed at Knott's Berry Farm, and huh. the Charlotte set was in the Strawberry Reservoir in Utah. Fascinating. Yeah. Uh, one of these days I should go back to Knott's Berry Farm. No, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> I'll just instead have fried chicken. Yeah, let's just go to Utah instead. Okay. I think that does it for this episode of a national treasure. This wraps up our third week in June. I will be posting the graphic. I'll give you a big clue. Cause we only have had one guess and that one kind of has an asterisk oh, on it. No, no, we, we've had another. Oh, not a, a correct, correct guess. No, no, not a correct guess. Um, look at the graphic. It's that's where you're really going to find your clue for this theme for the month. You don't have to watch the movies. You don't even have to listen to these podcasts other than to know, just look at the graphic and that will help you out. But never forget. Dodges never stop and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. 